Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you're subscribed to the podcast, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Feel free to spread the word. I want to do a quick introduction before we get to my discussion with Brian. You know, first of all, he was the first musician to agree, professional musician to agree to appear on the podcast. And I basically just hit him up on Facebook, explained the idea behind the podcast when I didn't have any episodes recorded. And he said, sure, absolutely, why not? Just super down-to-earth, great guy, kind of emblematic of the way Guster runs its operation in general. You know, they're not a crazy, over-the-top successful band, but we're talking about an outfit that's been around for the better part of two decades and has been one of the more accessible bands that I've ever come across. So um, some surprise on my end that he would agree so easily, but at the same time, not. Uh, the intro to this podcast is Lazy Love, and that is a Guster tune, and it's off their most recent record, Evermotion, which we talk about in detail on this on this podcast. And when I asked if he'd come on the podcast, the second part of the question was, would you let me use that song for the bumper music, the intro and the outro music, because I think it's absolutely perfect. Um, it kind of suits the mood that I want to set with the start of every podcast. It's got some you know, intrigue and good spacey vibes to it, uh, but enough kick to be, you know, to get you in the mood to know what's coming, so to speak. That's a really bad way of saying that I thought the song was absolutely perfect for this kind of thing, and as long as they'll let me use it, that will be the podcast music on the Records and Riffs podcast here. So thank you to Guster and to Brian for for clearing that, and please, I, I do recommend this band almost among all others that I've ever come across, because I think their style of music, what they've created, I think it is extremely embraceable and approachable, and they change up their sound enough where you're not, you're getting a familiarity with each record, but enough of a difference on each record, and that can be said of so many successful bands because that's kind of inherent, and Brian kind of touches on that as well. That's inherent to any band that wants to remain relevant with inside of itself and successful for years upon years and album upon album. You can't kind of do the same thing over and over, but there is sort of a sweet spot between really pushing the boundaries of what the fan base will take and still run with you and staying true to what you really are in sort of an organic sense. And Guster does that so well, better than a lot of bands that I, that I can really think of. So this was a huge thrill for me to do and enjoy it. Again, Lazy Love is the, is the bumper music for this Records and Riffs podcast. And here's my discussion with Brian. Enjoy. Welcome back into the Records and Riffs podcast. This is a pretty exciting one for myself, I have to admit, because one, we're getting a member of a band that I would honestly consider among my three or four favorite bands ever. And he is, I will be fully transparent here, the first uh, legitimate musician I've had on the podcast, uh, Brian Rosenworcel. Drummer for Guster, also known as the Thunder God. We'll get to that nickname eventually. But, uh, Brian, thank you for coming on, man. And I can't tell you how excited I am. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. Uh, it's an honor. Uh, I'm, I'm doing good. It's an honor? <laughs> well, it's no. It's The honor is, the honor is all mine on my end. You're in, you're in between tours right now. Now, you've, you've got this new record, Evermotion. It's your seventh in basically two decades with the band. So... You're a father of what three now, three kids, and and balancing family life with with being in you know a relatively well-known touring American band. So, how do you 
balance that? And is it different now than it even was two years ago, four years ago, six years ago? Because, you know, your family has grown, your children are getting older. How are you, ba- how are you balancing all of that as a person and as a band? Because, you know, you're all dads in Guster now. Yeah, I mean, if we had uh, if we had all these kids running around when we started our band, we couldn't have ever done what we did. We jumped in a van when we were in our 20s right out of college started driving around uh, playing clubs and, you know, building up a mailing list one name at a time. So we wouldn't have had the time to invest four years in, uh, in DIY hmm. um, a fan base breeding. Uh, but uh, at this stage, we're able to adapt. You know, we, we don't tour nine months a year. We tour, you know, closer to four months a year. Um, that's like the sweet spot where the family resentment gets balanced with, you know, <laughs> income and uh, other things. But um, we're still having a great time. And, um, you know, being a dad doesn't take away your musical inspiration. It really only adds to it. All right. So I've got I've got a load of questions here. Some of them random and undoubtedly maybe a little bit weird. But I've been a fan of the band for... About 16, 17 years. I will say, I feel I've successfully pushed your band onto more of my friends than any other band ever. Okay, don't be alarmed. That's a really weird song I got going right now. It doesn't really fit the mood of the podcast whatsoever. That's kind of why I picked it. We had a technical difficulty at this point in the podcast, and I could not edit it seamlessly, so I figured I'd rather just put a really weird sound song effect underneath my explanation of that. But anyway, let's get back to the podcast. Anyway, uh, so the point is, I, I discovered your band through a recommendation uh, from a girl that I never ended up dating, and I instantly uh, really dug you guys uh, immediately. And since then, it's been kind of a point of, uh, of pride for myself, too. And this is, you know, how so many bands kind of catch on. But in particular, uh, in my life, I've just... I've said, you know, people ask, who, who do you like? Who's your favorite bands? And I always say Guster. And now it's gotten to a point where I don't have to say, yeah, Guster, this band that formed out of Boston. Like, I feel like your name is pretty well represented overall. Um, and you guys have been around now for tw- you're 24 years old. The band is 24 years old, basically, at the time of this recording, right? Because you formed going into college in 91 at Tufts, correct? That's right. We met 24 years ago. That's um, wild. So you've been a member, you've been in the band longer than you've been not in the band. That is correct. I remember the point in my life where it was equal. I'd been in the band half of my life, and it was like a, a turning point where it was a moment of pride. <laughs> okay. So you've got the nickname Thunder God. You've had that as long as I seemingly have known the band. How did that even come about, and when did you finally embrace it if you were not the one that actually started it but were afraid to tell anyone that? <laughs> I, I was the one who started it. I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, I stole it from Rick Thunder God Allen, who was the drummer of Def Leppard. So it's his nickname. I'm just borrowing it. I think he got the nickname because he plays with one arm famously yes. and um, you know uh, uses his feet creatively um, but has these thunderous one-handed tom fills. And so I think he's the god of thunder. Therefore, I just wanted – I was just jealous of him and took it. Okay. Uh, that's pretty intriguing. What I want to know is on your – 
your hand drum set percussion set do you have anything like over the years that thing's been beat to death but what's the oldest piece of equipment that you have on that set and does any of it date back to your tough days or or have some pieces uh or you know whatever parts of the kit have they long since died off um you know that kit um is uh vintage in the sense that um i've just been kind of holding it together with duct tape for 20 something years and uh it started out as just bongos and a conga and i added one at a time uh each element be it a djembe or a hand snare or a kick drum or cymbals and you know eventually there were things in there that you shouldn't be hitting with your hands hmm. but early on i put a put this like strange pair of bongos that had three heads um i put it in there more as a visual gag than anything it, you know, they didn't really like, put out any tone um, I found them at a yard sale, and they just kind of were orange, and you'd never see bongos with three heads instead of two. Sure. Um, and we called them the bongettes. I don't know why my sound engineer coined that. And they're still there. They don't really serve any purpose anymore except um, we put an electronic trigger on it. So when I hit the uh, strange yard sale bongos, like I can make it sound like a hand clap or a sleigh bell or whatever electronic sound I want. So that thing is just bungeed onto my kit and will be as long as I'm in this band, as long as I'm the Thunder God. Okay, that's that's fairly intriguing. Now, here's my question I've always wanted to, to ask you. So you, you meet Adam Gardner and Ryan Miller at what's been reported a wilderness retreat with Tufts. This is where you meet them, right? Yeah, it's like an orientation thing. Okay, so do you bring the bongos to the retreat no that would okay. have been, that would have been a that would have been what we call in the business a uh <laughs> i think bringing your bongos to the orientation is like a social faux pas it's uh, just like it's like you want you want to be known as the bongo guy but i don't think you want to like bring it to orientation you're real nervous at that point you want to make friends but you you know, maybe put on like your best seashell necklace. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I, to I totally. Well, that was that's what I always wondered. So you, but you met them at the orientation, and then a uh, couple weeks later, were you in the same dorm? Like it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, let me go get my bongos and we'll jam. Like it's one of those things where you don't want to try too hard at the at the same time. I'm just trying to picture yeah. 1991 Tufts as you kind of got together. Um, if it came organically or if it was and I'm saying this really jokingly, but if it was really like Ryan and Adam jamming on the guitars and you were like, hey, guys, yeah, cool, I'll jam. Here are my bongos. So I've always wondered, like, the the true <laughs> uh, the true manifestation of, of the threesome and you kind of entering in as the percussive element and how that came to be. Really on to this, because that's exactly what happened. We became friends on, like, the bus ride home from the wilderness orientation. Um, we were talking about our high school bands and how we were all sad to be missing them, how they were all so awesome, blah, blah, blah. Um, those guys lived in dorms right next to each other and both played guitar and sang. So, like, I think that we were friends, and anytime they talked about jamming, I was like, yeah, I'm coming, and I'm, I'm bringing my bongos. And they were literally on the shelf of my dorm room, but I, I sort of shoehorned my way into those jam sessions, and uh, one thing led to another, and we became a 
band with an awkward instrumentation. And you started, I believe, I'm kind of drawing from memory here from interviews or stories I've read in the past, but you started kind of as somewhat of a cover band and then you couldn't all agree on what songs to cover consistently and then you decided to sort of start writing original music. Am I kind of on the right path there? Yeah, I think our first show was at an open mic night and we played uh, a few covers. Um, We played like a song from a band from Texas called Jacko Pierce that Ryan had introduced to us. We played like a Paul Simon song. Um, I don't really remember all of it, but um, soon after that, we just started writing our own material and that stuff was what people were attracted to, you know. You know, as soon as you become a band, you're asked to play a three-hour set at a frat party in sure. college. So, we um, we often played like the the first few Guster songs, like "Cocoon," "Fall Into." We played them several times in the basement of some like beer puddle party. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's how we cut our teeth as a live band, and you know, they encouraged us to keep writing. And in those early college years, in terms of rehearsals and songwriting, I mean, were they basically done? Did you guys live in a in a house together at at some point? But like in the first like I don't know freshman sophomore year, you're still in dorms, right? And so those aren't those are sometimes not the easiest places to rehearse, so to speak. I don't well, know. I've, I've always been intrigued, Brian, about like if you started with just a pair of bongos, when did you expand the kit, and then how were you able to rehearse? in a space that kind of allowed you guys, to, even though it was a it was a simple organic sound, especially in the early days, you, you know, you still needed to rehearse in kind of certain ways to expand your repertoire. So how did you pull that off as 18, 19-year-olds? Yeah, exactly. We, uh, we were just acoustic guitars, voices, and bongos. So we just sat in the dorm room. We could, uh, we didn't need more than that for a long time. Even as I grew my kit, you know, everything was acoustic. We didn't need to plug anything in to write a song or rehearse a song. Uh, it wasn't until um, after college when we got more ambitious and started learning other instruments and uh, uh, that we started needing official rehearsal spaces. So it kind of made it a convenient way to get together and work. Now, you released Parachute uh, in the fall of 95, so it's... 20-year anniversary is actually coming up pretty soon here. When you made that record, did you make it, because you were still in college when you made the record, so did you make it with uh, broader ambitions beyond it, or did you all want to just say, you know, make a record to say you you had made it? I don't, I don't know how big your following was at that point, but was it seen as like, this will be our first of hopefully two or three, or it was, let's just make one, see how it, ha- see how it goes, and maybe we can, you know, continue to tour the greater northeast what was the uh the vision leading up to parachutes release i mean we were juniors in college when, when we recorded that um i think we were just psyched to have 11 songs and uh we were psyched we had a on-campus fan base that was um you know pretty energetic uh so yeah there was no question we'd record these 11 songs you know there were no goals beyond just recording them there was no guarantee that we were going to keep our band going after we graduated, but there was definitely an, enough reason for us to to do that. Uh, so we recorded like from midnight to 5 a.m. with this producer named Mike Deneen at Q Division, which is now a pretty well-known studio in Boston. 
Um, but they gave us recording time for real cheap in the middle of the night, and he liked us and wanted to work with us. But you know, we were we were struggling to complete our courses, being up all night every night, and we were. Uh, it took us a long time to make that record because we needed to involve some other studio musicians and uh, and so on and so forth. But when it came out, it was far beyond uh, where we were as a band. Like that record sounded pretty good, and uh, you know, we we kind of just put it out at a campus CD release party. Um, but it really helped us get our fan base going and get guster reps and get a lot of people interested in us right around when we graduated what else do you remember from that cd release party because that would have been you know the biggest event of your i would presume that was the biggest event of your yeah lives to that point so now that it's almost 20 years gone uh any particular memories or visions fun yeah. interesting that stand out from it it was at the dewick mcphee dining hall at tufts and i That's remember awesome. some remember some douchebag put off a stink bomb which is like a, <laughs> sulfur smelling thing and cleared the room and I was just I thought it was so tragic I just couldn't believe someone would do that but um I think I think we uh I think we had some enemies at Tufts as well <laughs> one of them bought a ticket to our CD release party at a dining hall and let off a stink bomb oh my gosh that's that's absolutely wild uh, that's pretty much it's pretty much all I remember from that show Matt that's oh man oh and t okay so in terms of like 91 to 95 basically up until parachutes release you were primarily playing like what would have been your biggest show before the CD came out what, like did you anything above like 500 or so people I, I don't know if you played campus festivals or whatever but were, were you still f playing fairly small stuff yeah i it, it was only appropriate for us to be playing the smaller clubs we would play harvard square with a guitar case open right and we would attract really big crowds there you know to the point we would get like noise decibel tickets and really um things like that but we started playing other colleges um, and they would have us open for national acts. So we would go to like Middlebury College and open for the band live, and there'd be maybe a thousand people at that. So we got in front of some bigger crowds, and we always did well. So there was enough incentive for us to keep going when we graduated. And that ties into a question that I was going to ask in a little bit, but I'm just going to ask it now since we can segue. You are doing a really cool thing um for your upcoming fall tour and that's basically holding open auditions so to speak for high school and college age bands to open for you guys on your what 2025 date fall tour and giving those bands a chance the way that live or some other groups might have given you a chance back in 92 93 94 that's pretty terrific who's whose brainchild was this and i presume the uh, the judging process will be done by the band itself? Yeah, it was Ryan, our singer. I don't know where it came from, but we were all like, yes, that's awesome. I mean, we've played with uh, plenty of college bands before because we went on a, on a historic tear of spring flings between the year 1998 and 2004. Probably legendary played. run, of course. Legendary run colleges we probably played every college in this country um and often there would be uh, local openers from the school um but it'd been a while and uh we just thought it would be a way to connect to our roots to uh you know kind of 
uh, have a chance to to meet them, maybe provide some inspiration, maybe have someone in their band jam with us on a song or vice versa. Uh, it felt like just good karma, and um, there's probably a lot of good college bands out there, and we'll see when we get into the judging phase. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll help pick them. That's absolutely superb, and I wish you had done it 10 years ago <laughs> when I was in college. We could have tried and failed spectacularly. Um, within the band, I, th- there is something that I, that I wanted to touch upon. Um, when discovering Guster in the late 90s, uh, one of the biggest, and I still think a, a, a big draw to the band is its, and I know you don't play a direct part in this, uh, but it is the harmonies of that. And over the years and over the records, Ryan's role has become dominant. Um, when I don't know if this happened organically, but Adam does not sing nearly as much as he once did. Why was that decision taken? Was it simply because you wanted more instrumentation and Adam was just, you know, the natural um, nominee for that outside of specialists like obviously uh, Joe and Luke? But particularly the decision to have Adam not sing predominantly lead on songs nearly as much as he used to. Uh, when and why did that decision come about? You know, I think that also felt pretty organic, even though, you know, it was definitely a moment where there was a shift in our band. Adam started out pretty much as our lead singer uh, on our earliest material. Um, but as we grew, um, Ryan became our main songwriter and lyricist. Um, so it was his melodies that were really stepping above and beyond and helping our music uh, take on, you know, a serious quality. And it still is, you know, we're a melodic band first and foremost. So Ryan's, you know, knack for melody is is what makes us special, I think. Um, so uh, over time, as he was writing more of the material, uh, he felt it felt more most natural for him to be singing it. Um, you know, there are instances of Adam singing Ryan's melodies and lyrics. Um, you know, Dear Valentine, uh, gorgeous song. Yeah, thanks. Um, but um, it's a little weird <coughs> for those guys um, to work that way for someone else to be singing um, singing your melodies when you know how to treat them yourself or whatever. I don't think it ever was supposed to get as far as it is now where where Adam was relegated to just a a backup role and I think we're going to make a conscious effort to mix it up more and more. Uh but um you know there were some there were moments where you know we tried to put Adam's voice on one of Ryan's songs and it it just it kind of wasn't happening or you know a song like Ramona uh, where it was happening. Uh, so, you know, I think we're conscious of it. Um, we're comfortable with Ryan as a front man, but for a lot of people who are introduced to us with, uh, with Adam playing an equal vocal role, that's like a weird development. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. Uh, Ramona is actually my wife's favorite Guster song. Um, my wife's name is actually Diane. And I, one of the first nights I ever met my wife long before we began dating, I was like, your name's Diane. Oh, and we, I just come keep it together had come out shortly before that. I was like, you've got to hear this song. You've got to hear this song. And at the time she thought I was using it as some, some reason to like get with her, which honest to God, I, I wasn't, but eventually, uh, you know, things turned for the, toward the interesting. 
and the romantic and so uh and then so it goes so you guys were actually um kind enough on your acoustic tour at port chester i guess that would have been january 2013 or 2012 i can't remember but uh you wound up yeah. playing it. we were in the audience you wound up playing it and that was a a really cool thing i've always said guster is the band you discover in college but gets better as as you grow older and you guys have kind of You've really done that with your music. I mean, if I were to have someone sit down and, and, all right, listen to Parachute and then listen to Evermotion, your record, which came out in January, uh, they're they're very, 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 very different. I mean, they're about as different as you could be while still holding on to some semblance of your original DNA. Um, you, you guys have been able to do this and keep the core of the band, the three of you, obviously, with supporting players over the better part of the past 15 years. Uh, this is kind of a broad and perhaps a question you've gotten before, Brian, but how how do you pull that off? How do you continue to grow and change strong elements of your music uh, and still keep a fan base? To me, to me, the fans that you have, I don't feel like you lose most of them. Some will, you're able to still lure in younger listeners, but I know, I mean, I'm 34, and I know plenty of people uh and you could tell just by looking out in the audience at your shows you, you'll see uh, a youthful component but you'll also see you know dads out there and, and moms out there so how have you been able to kind of cultivate that over the past 20 years uh yeah i mean i think that's it's like the one of the proudest things i'll look back on of being in guster is our evolution um and the question is uh, i mean how do you how do you change so much being in a band over 20 something years? My question would be, how could you not change? Like if we were just doing what we had done at the beginning, still, uh, we would probably be going through the motions. Uh, so every time we set out to write songs and write an album, we have a lot of conviction about honing in on something classic, about stepping it up, about writing, writing the great pop song that, is still a little elusive to us, but also, you know, not doing things we've done before. So, uh, new instruments is a real way to get inspiration. And, uh, you know, every time we sit down, it's like, all right, uh, this time I have this to offer. And this time I'm this mature from having listened to a, B and C records and, uh, yeah, we take it real seriously, and uh, when our fans are absolutely shocked by the sound of our album almost every time yeah, we put it out. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that's accurate. Uh, you know what? It it feels good. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I want them to ask on our part for our fans to embrace something that sounds so different than what they know, but uh, a lot of fans give it the time of day and realize the melodic thread that still continues to go through it and you know our fans deserve a lot of credit for rolling with our changes you know i think the band has a knack for something that i don't know i i think bands don't really have control over this but but guster would qualify as a band that is able to create albums that jar uh fans on a first listen and then by listen 40 uh they are so entrenched and and i can speak you know personally easy wonderful came out i did not enjoy it on the first five listens and i i absolutely love it now uh and it's crazy to me how that can happen um and there are a few other bands 
like that uh, that I had those experiences with, but but you guys are certainly uh, one of them. And I, I don't even know how that how maybe it's it's something where you get to know a band at a certain stage of your life and you're kind of connected to them for life. And I discovered you guys in my teens, and so there will always be a certain uh, devotion to it. But are you as a band, are you aware of this when you're creating records? Uh, I would say specifically dating back to Keep It Together and everything up up through to, to this point, that when you're writing these songs, uh, you're putting stuff down on the record that, that you're proud of and that you want, but that you also know will have a certain grower element to it or, or it'll have a, a, a certain uh, component to it that you know will last beyond, you know, one or two or three years like these albums won't just fall by the wayside for fans uh yeah i think that we're aware when we're writing and recording oh man this song is gonna really shock people or we'll even say our fans are gonna hate this but it never affects us we're we're, we never change anything we're gonna do what we're gonna do we don't really care what anyone thinks (laughs) i mean uh we care, but we're, we're not going to let it affect what we create. So, like, yeah, recording Simple Machine, we're, like, putting these crazy uh, keyboards and drum machines on the song. We're like, oh, man, our fans are just going to not know what to think of this. Or even in 2003, recording Red Oyster Cult, which was, like, a prog rock song. That, that one was my favorite song on that record when I first heard it. No joke. I <laughs> or, loved it. Or Ruby Falls, which, you know, sounded more like Pink Floyd than Guster. Sure. Uh, any of those songs, when we were recording them, we were like, geez, man, what are people going to think of this? And then over time, you know, people come to us and like, yeah, that song is my favorite. And, uh, you know, it just we just hold to our convictions like any artist should. I mean, so all of my favorite artists have done this. If you look at Bob Dylan, if you look at Neil Young. Those guys created albums that really jarred their fan base, um, and then over time, uh, often proved proved them right. I mean, look at Dylan going electric. Yeah, there's a whole documentary of people in the audience calling it rubbish. He's playing the songs off of "Bringing It All Back Home." He's playing the songs off of "Blonde on Blonde" to these people. Their band is ripping it up, and these people, unfortunately are not able to appreciate it, and history does not shine well on them. That's true. I think Ryan Adams is another modern example of an artist with a pretty dedicated fan base and a style where he's, you know, he wants to really just jump out into different boxes and jar his audience. And... Yeah, I, I really admire his re- career. When he first started out, I thought he was just ripping off Uncle Tupelo <laughs> and, the re- and the replacements because I think he was, but, you know, when Bob Dylan started out, he was just doing an impression of Woody Guthrie, so that's it's often a good launching point for other stuff. And and to go back to an earlier point of yours about being a teenager where you're attached to the sound of a band from when you are emotionally invested in them and discovering them. I'm I'm the same way. I mean, I love Wilco and I, I have a hard time with a lot of their newer material because I'm just so attached to their first four albums and uh, it's the same way with a lot of bands. You just have an emotional attachment to the album you discovered. And so I get it. And um, it, all credit to people like you who are able to give easy, wonderful 40 spins and discover what's good about it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in having a conversation with you, I want to be honest with you. Like, I listened to Easy Wonderful and I was like, 
uh, on the ocean clicked um and uh this is how it feels to have a broken heart clicked but most of it i was like and oh uh, architects and engineers for sure like when it started i was like oh yeah i'm feeling this but then i was like Ugh, i don't know um and it took a while it took probably about a year and then i mean bada bing i mean do you love me was the final song we played at our wedding when like everyone was on the floor and we were just getting ready to like walk off like you know it, it was certainly an album that was a grower but i very much enjoy it now and I would personally place it above your first two records in terms of a of a guster hierarchy, I guess. I don't know. Um, but overall, it is impressive how, like with with Evermotion, Brian, I feel like it's the right record at the right time for the band overall. Because you guys basically, Easy Wonderful is the hardest most grueling process of any record you made, right? I mean, I'm judging, I'm, I'm saying that based off of interviews the band has done in the past. Yeah, definitely. It, it occurred in two very separate phases. So there was the darkness and then there was the light. Right. And so coming out of that, um, you, you know, you, you guys, well, I guess in the middle of the record or before the record or after it, did you have the, the conversation where you, where you guys really sat down and said, okay, is this going to continue? Are we are we still going to be a band? Is this are we going to go on a break or whatever? When did that serious conversation happen? I think a conversation like that happened in the middle, when we were really down and out from a producer who uh, we didn't get along with and who kind of you know crashed the car a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we made the decision to uh, to keep trudging ahead to fix what we'd done and to write a bunch of new material and. You know, we came out the other side of it and came out with a record that, you know, felt pretty cohesive despite the process. So, uh, you know, I think we also had to, uh, had to go confront those same demons uh, before we sat down to write Evermotion because uh, Joe had left the band. Uh, we didn't know what it was going to be like without him, but uh, uh, Luke really adds a whole new thing and he is responsible for ever motion feeling like it broke through a, a wall very interesting yeah and and the addition of luke how did you guys decide because joe is obviously just an immensely talented musician um there's no, there's no doubt about it that what he brought to the band for so many years and the elements of both studio work and live show uh was was tremendous and so for you guys to find a replacement to go to luke and for luke to kind of know not that he had to step into those shoes, but just uh, but play a role similar to what Joe had. How did you guys decide on him? I- I'm presuming you didn't all sit on a couch with your arms folded and had him audition for like 30 minutes under a, a white hot light. So how did you actually end up uh, settling on Luke? Yeah, well, Joe was super valuable to us um, on so many levels. Uh, he always played the hardest part on every song. He's like the next level musician. And, you know, honestly, the rest of us are still like college musicians. Uh, we can write songs, but we're, nobody's a virtuoso. Um, and we've taken on a whole lot of instruments in this band between the banjos and pianos and everything else. So uh, there was just one guy on all of our lists. And it was like, Luke is the only guy who could step into this role. We've known him for a long time. I hope he's interested. I hope he's at a point in his life where he'd be willing to join us. And he was. And, uh, you know, our band is all the better for it. 
Uh, before I get to some quick rapid-fire stuff, uh, in my opinion, the members of Guster have what would be, for me, the ideal life as a successful musician in that you've largely made records on your own terms. You are successful enough that you can have a family and live comfortably, but yet you can go to the grocery store and remain fairly anonymous. You have a really strong relationship with your fan base. Uh, you're a relatively um, modern band, no matter when you make your album. They don't really, you could argue Parachute sounds dated. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, refute that but every other record really for the most part uh has aged fairly well would you agree with that i mean you know if i told you 20 25 years ago okay brian you know you're gonna you're gonna make it you're gonna you're gonna live your life uh, as a musician in a band in a rock band and you're gonna get to tour the country but you know your fan base will be relatively devoted you might not you know have a massive single hit that'll absolutely dominate the radio airways has this gone about as well as you could have except you know expected it to and relative to your personalities as well i mean i don't know sometimes bands will have members that kind of seek more fame or more success in certain avenues but you guys seem to have really hit the sweet spot as far as i'm concerned thanks matt i mean there's two ways you can look at it uh we definitely uh didn't expect this to turn into a career uh none of us went to college thinking we'd be rock and roll musicians. Uh, so, you know, this has been a ride that um, makes me so proud and, you know, uh, it's the best job in the world. So the fact that I've had it uh, is just awesome and a great part of my identity. So, yeah, uh, there's, there's nothing but good feelings about um, our entire career. Uh, and then you can also look at it and think about, you know, so many years on a major label, we were we were writing pop songs and hoping to hoping to reach more people, but we just continued to uh, fly under the radar, and you know, uh, and we always were, there was that elusive hit song for us. We've never had uh, a song that, um, you know, joined the uh, stratosphere of of famous songs. Uh, and I think we're all wish we had. We wish we'd written it. We wish uh, maybe a label had promoted uh, the correct song at the correct time. But uh, you know, to be in 42 years old and still have a fan base that uh, buys tickets to our shows and supports us and is on board with our uh, our albums every time we put them out, and you know, still to be making relevant music. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. All right, let's do some quick rapid-fire stuff. Uh, biggest crowd you've ever played to would have been what, when, and where? Ooh, I mean, uh, Woodstock 99 Festival, I think. Uh, Woodstock 99, before the fires, right? <laughs> before they yes. burned that place down. <laughs> I think we, we were going head-to-head -head with Kid Rock. You know, we had, like, 25,000 on the east stage and he had 250,000 on the west stage oh my gosh that is absolutely so this would have been just after lost and gone came out uh yeah or maybe right before actually okay uh, uh and actually we the keep it together uh cd release party was a free show in boston that they say there were 40,000 people at and it was just an endless sea of heads to me 
we played the songs faster than we've ever played them. We were nervous. Was that when the, uh, I believe the late great mayor referred to you as Gooster? It was. Yes. That was the day. That is, that is a, a classic sound clip. Um, okay, and the smallest you've ever played, I believe, was a dumpster in Portland, Maine earlier this year. Is that is that basically accurate? Yeah, usually the dump, dumpster sets are promoted heavily and then end up with less than five people at them. But we'll what, is the, what is the idea behind these dumpster sets? Why do these, why do these happen? Because those five people are so psyched, Matt. We just we just drop a geo coordinate over social media and say we'll be here playing in a half an hour. And usually, it's a dumpster behind some gas station in some suburb somewhere. And you get a few people that drive by in their cars and just say, "Oh my god!" And it's worth it. That is pretty cool. And you guys have have done cool things in terms of using social media. Um, you know, the things that other bands have done as well, but in terms of like, okay, take us to the show, are under this rock right now, we just left them here. If you want them, go find them, that kind of stuff is also really cool. Uh, two of your, se- so you've got seven studio albums, which two would you recommend someone that has never listened to Guster? What is What are the Guster Primer records, the two that they should start with if you want to send them down the rabbit hole? Huh. I mean, if you're going to start with a Guster record, you have to go with the seminal record, 1999, Lost and Gone Forever. I don't uh, I don't listen to it anymore because it sounds real weird to me. Really? Okay. <laughs> but, but I know that the songs were really the next level for us, and Steve Lillywhite's production was really raw and cool, and, uh, you know, it really helped us reach the next level. So, you know, that is our seminal album, and uh, I'm proud of it. So, and uh, yeah, 2006, Getting It Up on the Sun. Um, that was a strange, strange record for us. A very ambitious. That is my record. favorite Guster record, Brian. Yeah, it's really ambitious. Um, and it, uh, it's a holder upper. You know, when, when we put it out, nobody liked it. And, uh, or at least it felt that way. And now, you know, every song on that record still finds its way into our set. Yeah, that is. That is a stellar record. That would probably be the two that I would give as well. Um, Ganging Up on the Sun really runs a nice gamut of a lot of, of what your sound was uh, before it and what you were embracing then, and even there's a couple flares of what uh, would come down the road. Speaking of um, your early stuff, though, are there any plans to get any of those first three on vinyl? Oh, man, Matt, you really are just inside the brain of the Guster operation. Am I? Okay. We have a, uh, we have a big announcement coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll take that as a, as a yes, and I'm very excited for that. I've been waiting uh, quite a long time for it. Hey, what about set lists at shows? Who writes them, uh, and is it a, a quick bing-bang-boom, or is it sometimes, you know, maybe over lunch that day you guys will be like eh, you know you maybe you'll fight for one or you'll be like i have no interest in playing that song again tonight can we just take one night of a break from it i i'm always intrigued by how bands approach that list who writes them and, and what the process is uh i write them i've always written them it's not a bing what did you say bing, bing bang boom it's, it's not that um i actually go online find the set list from the city we're in from the last show and make sure nobody's seeing the same show and That's that being good. said, there are only certain songs that are kosher to play because we've rehearsed them or because so many of the songs from our first two records 
are just off limits for us because we can't play them anymore or we can't stand them anymore. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's all, there's sometimes a little moment in soundcheck where I'm like, Hey man, we could really use either way in the set tonight. And Ryan will say, Oh, and Adam will say no. And then we'll run it and then I'll get it. So I push, I push for variety. I I push for people to have a different experience. And that's very good to hear. I like it. Um, and I'm also intrigued by the fact that you get to write all the sets, and it's always been that way. Did has this? How how did you? That's kind of a cool responsibility to have, but it is a responsibility nonetheless. And I guess they just they've always been cool with you calling the shots on uh, on game day, huh? I mean, it's a skill that you develop, and uh, I I think about a lot of things in a set list. I think about the tempos of the songs. I think about what albums the songs come from. I think about whether I'm on the drum kit or the percussion kit. I think about whether Ryan is singing from the piano or singing from the guitar. Um, uh, so yeah, it's a it's a whole skill set. And those guys, if they put together a set list, I would point out all the flaws in it, and they would agree with me. So yeah, they they just kind of go with my flow. All right, quick 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 two on your early albums here. One, I saw you guys in Syracuse. It would have been '03. And you played Bury Me, and I remember at the time Ryan getting on the mic and saying, we almost never play this. I can't remember why you played it. It might have been just a ram- random thing that you guys had sound-checked it and gave it a go. Maybe a diehard fan had like requested it. Um, but it was definitely cool. But I remember in 03, Ryan saying, we never do this. I don't know if we'll do it. Anymore. When was the last time you played Bury Me? Is this Does this still occasionally show up? Because I, I definitely have not seen you play it since you know 12 years ago. Uh, I think the last time we played Bury Me was... Uh... Uh, Syracuse 2003. Okay. <laughs> no, actually, there uh, there was the parachute 20 anniversary. There, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you had those shows. Threw bury me in there for those people at that show. But um, yeah, over time, that song and most people listening to this won't really know it, but um, we just that little spasm on the bongos yes. was was not really musical and was more I don't know more of a gimmick to me over time and so i don't look back on it and be like and feel feel particularly good well i enjoy that song so uh you're gonna have to accept that um the other one is mona lisa which i don't think i've ever heard live and i don't know how often you guys play it but it's you know it's a gorgeous little ballad to me it's the standout from parachute um, do you guys ever play that, or is it like a super rare thing, or have you just not even played it in a good 10, 15 years? Uh, no, Mona Lisa was one of the few songs uh, that crept into the set list in the last decade from Parachute. Um, you know, Window, Parachute, and Mona Lisa were the only three, really. And I agree, it's a, it's a, it's a great ballad, and um, Ryan can't stand playing it, so that's that. Really? See, th- this this is the stuff I'm telling you. Like, it, it is fascinating. So I, uh, totally immaterial to our listeners, but I I do play with a buddy, um, and we do mostly. Connecticut is not very uh, friendly to original artists in most areas. So if you want to make any sort of money, you got to play. You know, at I least. grew up, I grew up in Connecticut. Say no more. There you go. So you got to play at least 75% covers. I'm down uh, in the Fairfield County area. You grew up in Hartford County, is that right? Yeah, West Hartford. There you go. So anyway, point I'm making here is that, you know, we'll play gigs, uh, you know, weekend warrior types, you know, once a month or so. Um, and there are songs that I cannot 
stand to play. I, I cannot stand to play these songs, but my buddy will love to play them, or they'll just get tremendous like reaction from the crowd. Like you know, we try and not do obvious bar songs for the most part, but like uh, like one of them would be hard to handle. Um, Otis Redding, Black Crows made it you know popular. I can't stand playing that song, but people love to hear that song. So from your end, is there a song or two that you're really kind of over, but at this point it still has enough momentum within other members of the band or the crowd that you even overcome it and you're like, okay, I got to do it, I got to do it. I mean, yeah, uh, Demons is in there most nights, and uh, it was written in 1996, and um, we're not particularly pumped to play Demons, but uh, seeing... Yeah, I'm kind of over Demons. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, it's just kind of... Uh, it's a classic Guster song, so we we put it in there most nights. But um, a lot of a lot of these older songs, there's just something about it that someone's just totally spooked by, so we just can't get over it. But you never know. There, we we threw the song "Happy Frappy" into our set in Chicago this year. We we just like like to surprise people now and then. It's not a fish show. You're not going to get a totally <laughs> different set list every night, but. Hopefully there's a few in there that you haven't heard before. All right. Rumor has it you actually have snuck, you snuck or sneaked Kesha into Guster shows long before she was known as Kesha. Is this true? Yeah, she was just like a... This a is the most random thing ever, by the way. She was uh, some 15-year-old girl in Nashville who was like uh, always hitting me up for tickets and, uh, you know, pushing our music on her friends and... You know, that's the way we developed our band was by taking those people most seriously of all. So, yeah, I didn't know she was Kesha. She was just someone yeah. who I helped get into shows that were 18 plus before she was 18 or whatever. And, you know, 10 years went by before Ryan and her reconnected randomly in L.A. And she was like, I love your band and your drummer used to really hook me up at your shows. And he was like, you're Kesha. <laughs> And it's a great story because she's now our good friend. That is that is wild. Um, so I'm a sports writer. You're into what? Just fantasy sports? I like... oh, no, I'm, a, I'm a big sports fan. If, okay. Uh, when I in the fantasy world, I pretty much uh, am a fantasy basketball like uh, fanatic. But uh, but yeah, I like it all. I'll, I'll go as deep as you want to go. But I don't really do the college sports. That's fine. Well, okay, so. If... In terms of, uh, so you like the fantasy basketball? Do you do you do fantasy football? I mean, do you follow college or NFL? I mean, yeah, I'm a I'm a Giants fan, and I I do the fantasy football, but uh, I'm I'm not particularly good at it. Ha, have you ever been waiting to go on stage and made a fantasy trade? When when have I not? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I literally walk off the stage. <clears throat> and grab my phone and check my results and make the appropriate moves. <laughs> and it's pathetic, but you know you have a lot of leisure time when you're on the road, so it helps you hone in on your teams. When was your last fantasy championship, Brian? I pretty much win one every year. I'm like, is uh, that because you're in, in ten a... leagues, and so it's kind of just a an odds kind of thing, or, or is it, or is it? Just I'm one in. Uh, I'm usually in three. Three for me is a sweet spot where I can focus on them all. And make them all good. After that, my attention for each one starts to get spread too thin. Are you in the internet? Are you in like these random internet leagues, or are you in them with other musicians or longtime friends? What or maybe all of the above? Just how how big of a degenerate are you? 
uh, I'm a huge degenerate, um, but I don't do the random leagues. There's uh, one of my Frisbee buddies from Tufts where I played Ultimate. There's one league of, uh, of my friend Steve who runs the Rotor World site for, uh, for NBC. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's totally fine. Okay. That's, that's completely allowed on this podcast. Don't he worry. brought me in with the Rotor World writers, and, uh, and so that's an expert league, uh, and that's great. And uh, I'm in one that I started with a combination of friends and Guster fans and whatever. And uh, you're welcome to join us in that one, Matt. No, if if the invitation is standing, I will absolutely take you up on that. All right. That that you, I, I would I would be honored, uh, and would love to scout the tour as it's happening and offer you trades when I know you're moments away from stepping on stage. So maybe you can ponder it over, uh, perhaps during a you know a, a mid-song break if you've got a good 40 second thing to glance at your phone not that you'd ever do such a thing uh we'll wrap it up with this uh real quick you were quoted in a relics article as saying in terms of the band the peaks are still to come with the band um why do you feel that way in terms of your music and can you kind of go a little bit deeper as to what you were getting at with that i mean i think everybody every band thinks that their last album is their best album um, so I won't say that per se, but we definitely are writing material that feels like uh, it's our most mature stuff. Like the the melodies and grooves are are getting better and better, and I feel like uh, I feel like this songwriting vector we're on is one we just need to keep going down. Um, so uh, I really feel like uh, that's what keeps us going, and. Uh, you know, next time we sit down and write songs, uh, I'm hoping we, I'm hoping we hit our peak. So yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm aware that every band feels that way and needs to feel that way about their music, but uh, it is what drives us. It's Brian Rosenworcel. He does not have any sort of social media account except for the Guster Instagram, because the Guster Twitter one is run by Ryan, I believe. Correct. Uh, I'm the Instagram guy. You're the Instagram guy, and the Twitter one, at Guster on Twitter, is, is run by Ryan Miller. That's right. Um, but you don't have, like, a personal Twitter account you need me to push or anything like that? You don't, you know, you don't do um, that? There's nothing of mine that you could promote. I'm on Facebook just as me because I keep it real. You do keep it real. And by the way, the here's the, here's the real deal, though, is that uh, Brian's actually a, a pretty terrific writer, uh, Guster's road journals and studio journals over the years have been tremendously insightful, funny, uh, revealing, uh, sometimes not updated nearly as much as fans would like it to be because they're that well-written and entertaining. And a few bands have actually really given a glimpse uh, to their fan base of, of the goings-ons of the mundane, hilarious, random oddities of tour life the way brian has with with guster so uh when this podcast is live I'll, I'll link to those journals and i can't recommend that you really just deep dive it there are years and years to go through but uh but a lot of it's very good so that's another place where you can where you can check out uh the mind of brian is that is that okay can i can i push that on people yeah that's awesome i uh uh i definitely documented from 1999 to i don't know until the present, I guess, although more and more sporadically. Um, I documented it all in a way that um, 
will be awesome for me to look back at and, re -ex and experience again. That's very good. Evermotion is the new Guster album. It's been out for a few months here, but I highly recommend it. Recommend the entire discography. Uh, very, very easy band to get into. And if you've listened to this podcast, hopefully you're a fan already. If not, hopefully we've inspired you to do so. Brian Rosenworcel, thank you so much again, man. Thanks, Matt. Take care, man. 